0: Come <laughs>
1: Steve Rungi, i the layman, Trey Strickland, and he's the scholar, Dr. Michael Heiser. How are you, sir? Pretty good,
2: pretty good. We're going to we're gonna geek out a little bit uh, today, but uh, I think it'll be useful, even for people who aren't geeks.
1: Yeah, I am not going to lie that uh, grammar is really not fun for me, and my kids are just now <laughs> getting to the point where they're going to start studying it in school, and
2: give yeah, me all you, the math homework,
1: that. give me all the science homework, but when it comes to English Grammar, I check out. Yeah, well, the that's worst. where I checked in. I, I'm the exact opposite. <laughs> Boy, God bless there's people like you, because uh, yeah. when it comes to grammar,
3: yeah.
1: I'm out. Yeah, I, just, I didn't want to be confused by any numbers, so yeah. exact opposite. Yeah, I hear you. Well, um, I'm excited about this one, because uh, as always, anytime you get into the uh, nitty-gritty uh, with textual criticism, grammar, and the Bible, and you know what you do, I'm all about it, and I think your audience is, too.
2: Yeah, this will be one of those where we just try to help people take a closer look at what they're reading. Well, we're happy to introduce uh, Steve Runge, uh to our podcast, and this is going to be one of our uh, episodes that really focuses on tools and techniques uh, for Bible study, for more effective Bible study. We do this periodically. Uh, this seemed like a good time to do it. And Steve is right down the hall from me. Uh, he works at Faithlife, Logos Bible Software. But I'm going to let him introduce himself. He can do a better job of that uh, than I can. And then we'll get into what we want to talk about today. So, Steve, who are you? It's <laughs> a really good question. Uh,
4: my background is actually in is a general contractor construction. I was one of those kids that when I I remember I, I was given a picnic table growing up. I mean, I was probably third grade or something, and I disassembled it because I actually wanted to build a tree fort and repurpose the lumber, but I got to see how things work, and, and I was always interested in just kind of what's going on under the hood, uh, Not not mechanical stuff so much, but just asking why. My dad was a research scientist, and he kind of really fostered that in me where I'd ask him a question and he would answer my question with another question. Well, what do you know to be true? What principles are involved here? And uh, I can tell you if, if the internet and the discovery channel were around, I probably would have spent a lot less time with my dad growing up, but uh, he ended up basically just teaching me how to, how to do research and how to think about things. But I always had a, a great love of comedy. Steve Martin, language use, telling a good joke. Um, And as I got into seminary, I realized a lot of those skills and a lot of the interests that I had really would help me not just be able to tell a better joke, but actually preach a better sermon, do a better Bible study. And so I went in, I went to seminary at Trinity Western University and got a a master's in biblical languages and went on, uh, did that part-time while working almost full-time in construction, crammed a two-year degree into seven, and then did another repeat of that, basically a a doctor, uh, a doctor of literature in biblical languages from the university of Stellenbosch, another basically two to three year degree that I was able to cram into seven. Um, and basically what that allowed me to do was, was develop a specialization with one foot in biblical studies and one foot in linguistics. So I, I'm not really, I, I don't fit really well in either place. And, um, the linguist folks look at look at me as a biblical studies person. The biblical studies people look at me as a linguist. So it's it's really kind of a an odd place to be, but it's been really fruitful in terms of pursuing this question of how, what's going on under the, under the hood with with language and how can that then help us study the Bible better?
2: Yeah, um, yeah. I, well, you're not going to say it, but I'm I'm just going to interject it here. Um, Steve has uh, quietly. Maybe not so quietly in some circles, <laughs> uh, established a reputation as sort of a, you know, an, an up-and-coming grammarian. I mean, you're a little you're a little older to to be up-and-coming, but you're up-and-coming in, in terms of the your, your appearance, sort of on the scene, and you're getting a lot of attention from you know, sort of the uh, the old guard and the people who have perpetuated the old guard. So, uh, Steve's work has really penetrated into the academy for those, you know, who care about language analysis and biblical exegesis. And uh, he's not a he's not a mystery name to people who are in uh, Greek grammar, let's just put it that way. Yeah, it's strange He might of be an enemy Greek grammar. <laughs> exactly. No, it's it's been
4: strange to c- come out of construction and, and become you know, a Greek grammarian—that's what I always aspire to be. But I, I would think of myself more as like trying to be the the Bill Nye of Greek grammar to make it fun. I even have a lab coat, and so when I do video, uh, you know, do podcasts or videocasts online, I'll I'll typically wear that lab coat just to make it fun and interesting uh, because it it should be um, and grammar grammar should be cool, you know, just like science should with Bill Nye.
2: Yeah, and he's not lying; he does have the lab coat. We've seen him in the office, and of course, you know, you're, you're going to be on Faith Life TV, too, with, you know, some of your stuff, and, and you know, on the website, too, and, uh, you know, videos to market different things, but that's true. He does have a lab code. It's not a rumor. <laughs> oh, but the, I guess the, the thing about language, growing up,
4: I, I mean, if, if I had to rank classes that I either was least interested in or thought would be least valuable when i graduated you know english would rank especially english grammar would rank up as one of those things because it was it kind of felt like you know you have the a lot of it dealt with correction and what i was doing incorrectly and it just reminded me so much of my mom to some extent of like <laughs> but I, I can you know I, i'm i'm communicating things um and so we we you know so much of of grammar or exposure to grammar is about how to do things correctly and it's for the sake of doing them correctly and what I was more interested in, again, is that why does it work, and why does it work that way, and why is it, and I, when I say say it this way, it can make people laugh, or it ends up offending someone by accident, or something else. Like where, where I, it sounds like I'm saying the much the same thing, or it leads to miscommunication. Why do things work the way they do, and how? how can I understand language better? And that's, that's really what my quest was about. It, it was specifically focused toward applying these ideas in biblical studies. But, um, again, just telling a better joke, uh, understanding why is I'm laughing at, you know, a redneck guy that's using these terms, even words I you know I haven't heard before that make me laugh. Why, why do I laugh? Why, why do those terms work the way they do? And it turns out that linguists have essentially found that that god has wired us to process language um a certain way and it's in there are idiosyncrasies between different languages but there are also some some pretty pretty standard universals in terms of how information can be structured and how that affects our processing and how we expect how our expectations play against um different things and and so by understanding some of those kind of basic ground rules and those basic principles that can give us a framework then for being able to to understand not only in english what's going on but then some of the devices that the biblical writers use to to structure the New Testament writings to draw attention or to to direct our attention to something to connect things that maybe they they thought we'd miss or to just say, "Hey, this is super important, pay attention
2: mm-hmm. yeah, and, and inside the building I mean this is you know when Steve started down this path, I mean I can remember you you know showing up after one of the construction jobs you know at my desk and and uh you know trying to essentially sell this idea that hey you know the this is a important and b you know we can we can actually translate this you know pun intended to people who don't have Greek or Hebrew you know if they understood how their own language works you know we can build some bridge to how you know the, the same thing that they're familiar with in English even though they don't really right. think about it right. we can build a bridge to those things in, in Greek and Hebrew and give them a different way rather than just pure. You know, this is a you know present active indicative. You know, just pure parsing or morphology. You can give them a different way to think about what the text is saying, even even if it's only their English Bible. And so I, I can remember, you know, going to to Bob and Dale at the time, saying, you know, we we, we probably ought to do this. You know, th- this is really worth worth you know going down this road. And and they bought the pitch, and and the rest is sort of history. You know, it, Steve's had a long history of creating. Uh, you know things for the company you know for the software uh, that help people do this, and what we want to do today is is have him sort of walk us through you know some of of the way that you can the way, really the way that you should be thinking about what you 're reading so a lot of this talk and we can talk about discourse because that 's usually the the label that a lot of this goes goes under you know this linguistic label you know discourse uh, we can talk about what the term means, but more importantly you know, we want to talk about how a lot of this is really a matter of close reading and then thinking about what's actually going on. You know, it's sort of not just not just words you're looking at, but sort of at a, at a bit of a higher level, uh, how, how these things work and why they work uh, in a language. And these are things that we can apply to English, but you know obviously we can do it with greek and hebrew it's as the linguists like to say it's cross linguistic there are certain things that just cross the lines of languages every language has you know is trying to accomplish similar purposes and there's just different ways of doing that so what we're going to talk about here again is is i hope going to be uh, an assistance an aid uh, to bible study even at the the bottom level and that is hey when I'm reading, I need to be thinking about certain questions, or I need to ask intelligent questions about what I'm reading. But then even beyond that, maybe getting into some tools that will take you beyond things like Strong's Numbers. Uh, right, you know, right. Sort of these, these simple things that people, people who are serious about Bible study, they graduate from just reading to Strong's Concordance, or you know, maybe a study Bible, or this or that commentary. Uh, this is another one of those things that you can, you can graduate to. That will help you get more out of what you're doing. So, you just if you can, discourse. What what does the term mean? Why shouldn't it scare us? <laughs> okay. and discourse studies is it, it's a popular area in biblical
4: studies. It, it seems like everyone if is wants to be involved in it. But fundamentally, what it's talking. I mean, discourse studies is is about looking at at language above the sentence level. Most most grammar, you're looking at things within a sentence, within a, a, a clause. Uh, but there are things some things that that operate above the clause level Uh, for instance therefore uh, a lot of time you know the word therefore will be kind of introducing like a whole paragraph or making a reference from one big chunk of text to what precedes and so we can talk about levels within a discourse the sentence level being or clause level being like the lowest but then you can kind of theoretically move your way on up but it the further up you go, the fuzzier it gets because it has more to do with how how I've chosen to and, and how I've interpreted the text and built my own mental representation of it. Because if I read through, say, we're going to be looking at Ephesians two today. As I read through Ephesians two, when I leave the room, I don't have all of the words cons- you know committed to memory. Uh, I've got a friend that does that, uh, but you know I might have pieces of it. But when I'm when I'm reading a verse right at the moment i may remember most of the words but the further i get away from that there's this kind of shifting that happens where it goes from you know a a word for word trans, you know kind of memory of things just to to kind of more like the gist of what it's about and then it gets more and more generic and that's why um you know like with just memory short-term memory is is far better than long-term memory and that affects then how how we read and how we're building a representation of what we've read for, you know, for meditation or for preparing for a sermon or whatever it would be.
2: Yes. So, Um. so so as we read, you know, we're, we're, we're again building this picture of, Oh, here's what he's talking about in our heads. Right. We have this, this mental representation of what, what this, this stuff that our eyes are are running over or moving over, this is what it means. But then the, the writers will actually drop or use little things in the text as we read, that will make us think about that bigger picture stuff or draw our attention to some specific point in it, and that's all that that's intentional
4: right from a discourse standpoint or a linguistic standpoint we would look at at the writers as and, and grammar as a way of signaling uh, their intention so if if you come from an evangelical background and you have a uh, doctrinal you know belief in your church about verbal plenary inspiration meaning a word for you know a word for word you know, full inspiration of the text um, that should this idea of, of looking at how the writers have signaled things and how they've chosen to shape and structure and organize things because the grammatical choices they've made are actually not for their sake but for our sake their They're making these decisions to guide and direct us as we build that mental representation, where to separate things off into a new chunk and and when to to join it together. So as an example, if, if you have little kids in your life, whether it's your children or grandchildren or nieces, nephews, a lot of times they'll come running in when they're excited and say, you
1: know, daddy, daddy,
4: guess what? This happened and this happened and this happened and this happened. And, and you have all of these sentences joined with and 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 it can make you feel like your brain's going to explode because it's all this data and and the reason why is because and tells you to join two things together because they're related and and we have this expectation that we need to break things into like bites, basically like when we're eating if you try to stuff down a whole hamburger unless you're a hot dog, like you're at Coney Island or something, but even then they'd show things up. <laughs> but the we have to do the same kinds of things as we're – same kind of thing as we're reading. And so the reason why that feels like just such an information overload is because the kids are kind of breaking a rule. It doesn't mean it's unintelligible, but it has this potentially unintended in fact, uh, effect of making it sound like this is one hermongous piece that you need to digest all – once because they haven't given you any signals about where, where to break it up into right, smaller chunks. Stop. Yeah. So like in, stop. you know, adult English. So this is what, you know, Mrs. Williams was trying to teach me to do. I, you use temporal adverbs, you know, things like then next after that, or you can use, you know, numbers like first, second, third, um, all of those are are signals to say new chunk. It doesn't mean it's completely unrelated to what precedes, but it's it's just it would be like taking a sheet of paper and kind of cutting it up with scissors into smaller smaller strips. They still all go back and fit this and, and they form this one coherent discourse then this you know my story could be made up of several scenes or several different parts of it uh, but then those parts if they if it's a really a coherent discourse then, can get just like Legos get built up into bigger and bigger and bigger pieces. And pretty soon you have, you know, you've completed the death star by doing each of the little different parts of the Lego thing, following directions, same kind of thing with language.
2: For the, for the sake of listeners, again, what we're saying is that this kind of construction, this kind of signaling, which I think is a really good word. You can, you just have to sort of be be trained not necessarily to if if it's english i mean you know what the words are already okay you you're going to see them but you have to sort of train yourself to stop and think about okay what does this word suggest like next is this linear sequence or and it's temporal it has something to do there was something that preceded something that's going to come after so to to sort of stop and think a little more intelligently about what the what this word or these words actually are trying to accomplish and mean to kind of slow down, become a, a more intelligent a reader. But, but Greek will do the same thing. Right. And, and, and of course, the disconnect in all this is, do our English translations, do they do a good job of communicating these sorts of things in the process of of giving you know a Greek text or a Hebrew text to us in English? Do they do a good job of that? or not you know it's 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 a difficult task
4: it's it's it's
2: almost an impossible task
4: because you know let you in on a little secret greek is not english uh it's like <laughs> they have a different word for everything as steve martin line uh but the so depending on the, each of the different translations has a strength so say aniv is trying to provide a readable um uh so something that sounds like natural English where new American standard is trying to preserve as much of the the kind of structuring the structuring devices that you have in Greek and that's why new American standard as you read it can kind of sound a little wooden and and not sound like like it's very natural each of the different translations have been they, they each have a strength and they were designed with a purpose but but bible translation kind of no matter how you cut it you're always making choices and and it's kind of like you can only take so many things in the life raft with you, and and so the translators are constantly having to decide that. The great thing about something like Logos, Logos Bible Software and some of these data sets, um, like the one that I, I worked on and that Mike helped, helped get approved back in 2006 was uh, basically – the kinds of devices we're going to be talking about today can be overlaid on on any Bible translation virtually in in Logos. Um, and they can be laid on the Greek text, especially for, for people who've, who've learned Greek. Um, but even people who have studied advanced Greek won't have been exposed to a lot of these things, or they've been exposed to it with the, with the purpose of translating it but they still couldn't tell you why the writer did this or, or what this signals as opposed to some other thing. So we're going to actually be talking a fair amount about English in terms of beginning there because you know a lot more about how discourse works just as, a, as an English speaker. And then we're going to come over and, and apply those principles then to, uh, to the text of Ephesians 2.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, let, let's jump in and, and give us, you know, either some examples or go right into Ephesians two. However, you want to do it. Okay. But, uh, what, what, what will be the what'll be the passage? Verses. What are the verses in Ephesians two, so people Ephes- can either stop and look it up or remember and go back. Let's say Ephesians Ephesians two verses one through ten. Okay. Turn in your Bibles.
4: Yeah, um, yeah if, if you've got that, because in 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 the Greek text, verses one through one through seven basically are. Essentially, a, a kind of a giant run-on sentence. Uh, it Doesn't mean that the, the Greeks would have, you know, a, a Greek speaker would have understood it that way. But Paul has has used devices to make this one large, complex thought, kind of like the Lego building of the Death Star. Um, and we're going to look at different pieces of it. Like you can assemble, kind of preassemble this piece and then preassemble this piece. But he wants to get all of this, these kind of background ideas out, so he can make one one. Point at the end, and that essentially where he's pounding the pulpit. So one of one of the uh, which means if if we're interested in in doing teaching or understanding where he's where he's going, understanding these things can then help us really be in step with 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 Paul as as we understand these devices.
2: Yeah, to emphasize what he would have emphasized. Right, and for the same reasons, or or maybe maybe the same, you know, be able to capture, you know, why he, you know, how he led up to this. And you know what? What he was trying to get people to think while he was on the way, right? And it, it's not
4: going to solve every theological question. People say, "Doctor Rungi, I don't know how does this work." You know, give us a definitive answer. And it's like, well, I can I can eliminate options and eliminate possibilities based on the way it's phrased, but there's there's still flexibility for interpretation. So if you're looking for a silver bullet, I, I'm. I'm going to disappoint you. I can tell you that, um, but this will be something that, again, will help us help us help sharpen our understanding. The first idea I we'll want to talk about is is backgrounding. Uh, way back in high school, you probably and maybe if you if you love English and are one of those one of those people, um, remember the term participle. You know, it's it's basically the the kind of noun verb hybrid, generally ends in ing, like walking and singing. Participles are, are again mostly verbs, but they're not like full-fledged verbs. They 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 don't they don't stand on the same same par as like I walked. If I say walking versus I walked, um, walking is is kind of like left hanging, and that's why we have this. Uh, The phrase, one of the things you may have gotten yelled at about dangling participles, you've left this participle dangling, you haven't connected it to a to a main clause. And that's because participles purpose in life is to take something that could have been a separate main thought, like I walked, and to attach it to some other main idea. So again, kind of going back to that Legos idea, let's say you have one of the big Lego blocks or some big assembly. I can use participles and and make something more complex. So, like a lot of times, you'll hear this, uh, like a an announcer dribbling up the court, taking the pick from so and so. He runs, scores. You know, you know, and you you had the dribbling and and passing. Those are not the main action. Um, they're they're kind of background pieces that lead up to it. And by using a participle, the way we would process that, maybe certainly not without even thinking about it, those ING verbs are telling us this, you know, these are not the droids you're looking for. This is not that main action. But this is something that, but the, the important thing is, is it something that could have been, it could have been a main action. He dribbled up the court, he passed, you know, passed the ball and then, you know, did the layup or took the layup and scored. All of those could have been main actions, but the announcer or here, the biblical writer in, in Ephesians, uh, Paul, chose to use participles, and that has effects, that has implications. And so what we're going to see is most of verses 1 through 5 are these backgrounded actions. You you don't actually get to the main action until the last bit
2: of verse 5. What are some and, of the participles then? Like give us a some examples because, you know, if you're looking at it in English, I I can almost guarantee, I mean, I don't have a visual filter here turned on or anything, but you know, you can almost guarantee that a lot, some of these participles are going to be translated like they are just normal verbs. So
4: I'm going to go ahead and and just kind of read it in a, in a literal version. That's not going to match up with anything you can read, but it would, it would be you being dead in your transgressions and sins in which you, in which you used to live. And then you have the, the next uh, thought down in verse 4, but God being great in in love, who is rich in mercy. And then you have finally the, the main idea, which is made us alive with Christ.
2: So all those uh, other things are, are descriptive. They're participles, and the one that's not is made us alive. Right. So that's your big idea. Where are you going to pound the pulpit? He's made us
4: alive in Christ in verse is, you know, one through four, even the first half of five, um, well, and actually verse the beginning of verse five is being dead, in, you know, you were or being dead in, in your trespasses. Um, so you have kind of three backgrounded actions there. One, us being dead up in, in verse one. And then you have some, we're going to look at some other, again, s- dependent elements. Um, you have verse two, but, or verse four, I'm sorry, where you have, but God being rich in mercy, which, and then it gets into some description about that. And then at the beginning of verse five, it switches back to us, which is being dead in our trespasses. What Paul has there is he's told us not once, but twice we're dead. And he's talking to believers here. So this isn't about telling them about what their status is now. It's about reminding them where they were. And then verse four, you have this but God and you have this contrasting picture of us being dead in our trespasses and God being rich in mercy because of this great love he has. So we've got those two things contrasted with each other kind of uh, kind of in the back of our head and and on the on the table or on the on the, um, the desktop, so to speak that that's what we're thinking about and that's how we're thinking about ourselves that's how we're thinking about God before he finally comes down to the the one big idea
2: which he has is that he's that God has made us alive together with Christ so would you say would you say something like this i mean i'm i'm not trying to provoke any specific debate here but if someone comes up to you and says steve i think the main point of the first 5 verses of ephesians 2 is that paul wants us to really focus on on our deadness, okay that that would that would be a misstatement. It's not to deny our deadness, but that's really not you know where Paul wants our thinking to sort of orient. Correct? Or at least it's not
4: consistent with what he has done in terms of his grammatical choices, hmm. and that that's all. I, I I can't know what's in Paul's head. Sure. Uh, I mean, sure. We yeah. If I did, I could be writing you know books all over the place, but. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wouldn't we love that? But the the point is, is that we can say, well, someone typically uses participles to do these kinds of things, and this, this, this is scholar speak. I'll I'll grant that, but I mean, it's it's saying that they're typically used for this. They're used here in a way that's consistent with this, and basically, what it what it ha the way he's framed this is to basically do almost like a drum roll, kind of a big build up, because if someone was listening to this. Or, or if I was telling you a story and saying, you know, going to the store, parking my car, walking inside, looking around behind me to make sure no one was coming, going into the entrance, heading back to the dairy aisle. Okay, it feels like a story that's kind of not gone anywhere. Or you're waiting for when all of a sudden, you know, that th- that it's it's a it, yeah. it, it can it be used to do a build up, right? Yeah. Because Nothing has happened yet from a formal standpoint, even though i've been doing the, all of those actions there hasn't been a grammatically speaking there hasn't been a main action, and so you're waiting for like that shoe to drop what is it what is it what's this going to be and it's not just participles that can do that, but there are lots of different it's a common strategy though of this hanging everything else on one thing in order to draw that one thing you know draw attention to the one thing
2: yeah you know, um, that may, that makes sense because you know we've all you know, we've all read enough fiction where that's familiar to us. But you know, here here right. we have a letter and nonfiction, but the, the same kinds of things are are there, even though we, you know, our senses really aren't tuned to it. So, th- so as you think about, I mean,
4: the, the great thing is you can kind of practice this by listening to someone who speaks well or listening to commercials. Um, basically, the so, so things like participles that create a dependent relationship on whatever the main action is. It does two things. One is it clusters. You know, you take that that participial action like the um, being dead um, and God being great in in his love. Uh, Those two things could have been joint could have been independent main clauses and they weren't Um, by putting them by joining them to the being made alive together with Christ in verse five it 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 one makes a complex action but two it makes that main action stand out all the more um, it, it draws attention to it so um, we can't really know what the motivation is 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 the motivation to background that action or is it to cluster it the bottom is you 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 do one and you get the other for free that's just how language language works in general whether it's english or, or greek or hebrew um you'll find languages having this kind of strategy but there are other ways of doing that same kind of connecting using subordinate conjunctions, another big word. But it's it's words like since or because, um, although if I was to say something like, because you invited me on the show today and I stopped, even if you didn't know the grammatical principle, you could say, yeah, where's yeah. the rest of it? <laughs> right. Or, although I value you as
3: a friend. Again, yeah. You, you, I mean, you just
4: – again, I know this is intuitive, but I'm just saying you know a ton about discourse studies and grammar. You just – even if you can't use the words, you can sense those kinds of things because you're a, a user of the language. Um, and, and these kinds of devices uh, – uh, another another device would be a, a relative pronoun, the the who or whoever – we actually have one of those in in Ephesians in Ephesians 4 Ephesians uh, chapter 2 verse 4 you have because of his well you, in verse verse 4 you have but god because of his great love for us who is rich in mercy this who is rich in mercy it's that's technically a relative clause who is a relative pronoun there and and this is it's being used a lot of times relative pronouns are used to clarify which which widget am I talking about? Uh I want you to grab the, the book which is on the table or that's on the table, as opposed to the book that's on the coffee you know, on the T V or on the floor. Well we're not trying to figure out which God are we talking about. Oh, it's the God who's rich in mercy, not that other one who's not rich in mercy. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's not used to disambiguate. It's used to provide thematic information to shape how we think about God in this particular context, as opposed to maybe thinking about God as, as
2: judge or, or as creator or, you know, as, as the Father. You know, um, all, it would be all easy to think of God as judge because of the trespasses and sin reference.
4: Exactly. But he's shifting here and you have um, God who's, um, because of his great love for us, um, which is participle, and who is being rich in mercy, um, all again, that's the context. And you have this really cool comparison or juxtaposition there between what we where we used to be, regardless of where we are now, because remember this is Paul talking primarily to believers, and and basically what he's doing is taking us in the way back machine, <laughs> um, back to where we were before Christ to rem- to remind us of that, and then compare, you know, and then like going up to heaven to remind us of who God is, and and and. His great love, his great mercy. So that then when, when we're essentially going back and, and replaying that that home video of us coming to Christ and, and coming to know who He is, um, of being being made alive together with Christ, we're reliving it in all of its glory, even if even if that that sense of uh, thankfulness and that sense of, of the sin being washed away has kind of faded over time. By going back and, and, and using the participles, using these backgrounded actions, it's basically taking us in, in the way back where you can kind of relive it. Just like looking at old photos. It's it's a way of reminding ah, oh, I remember when I used oh man, I can't remember. I used to wear I I had hair like that, seriously. You know, it was seeing those photos evokes the memories in the same kind of way. Paul's going back and referencing these things that you know, hopefully people have walked away from and not gone back to, but it's it's then to to build this greater appreciation when he comes around to the main idea of, of being made alive together with Christ. It's kind
2: of interesting. I'm looking at ESV. Okay. okay. And in verse two, uh, it says, you know, when you were dead in trespasses and that's verse one in which you once walked relative pronoun there. Yep. Right. Following the course of this world and following, actually, I mean, based upon what we're hearing, you would think, "Oh, I wonder if that's participle. It's actually not. (laughs) (laughs) And and the following one, following the prince of the power of the air is also not. So you have, you know, again, you you, what, what what we would like people to do, you know, again, serious Bible students who want to graduate beyond not only reading and beyond Strong's numbers. When you get into grammar, these are not they are not participles. You know, if you have a, a tool right. you know, like an interlinear or something like that, you realize these are both prepositions. Right. And so, your your translation sometimes—I don't want to misleading—is too harsh of a term, but but it, in this case, something it got makes, left behind. Yeah, right, I, I up It up the makes the preposition. It makes the preposition sound like an action. Right. You know, in the way it's rendered. So, what we would ideally want is for people to you know penetrate past the English. And get to some of these you know awful grammatical terms that probably make them shudder because of their English class, <laughs> but, but what you know when, when you find one, when you see one, then how you know how should I think about it? How shouldn't I think about it? What does it accomplish? What doesn't it accomplish? And you're know, trying to start thinking about you know, these kind of questions when it comes to the Greek and not the English, but you can do it as you're illustrating. you can do this with English too. Right. Well, just just the repetition, kind of regardless
4: of how it's been translated. uh, I mean, not completely regardless, but um, another another translation has according to the course of this world instead of following the course of this world. So according to it, again, it it kind of creates a sense of walking along some kind of line. um, But just notice the repetition, though, you have whether it's according to or following you have following this, following this let's just slow down and look at that restatement or is it a restatement? Cause you have a parallel, you have two parallel statements. They're not joined by and or, but, and typically when you have things like that, that kind of repetition, you're making a second pass, you're looping back over it to kind of peel off another layer. So you have according to the course of this world. And then the second, second peeling off the other layer is according to the ruler of the authority of the air. And then you have, Another kind of restatement, a, a right dislocation. Uh, basically, it's this extra expression that's not narrowing down which authority of the air are we, or ruler of the authority of the air are we talking about? But ESV says the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Um, that's referring back to whoever the prince of the power of the air is. And normally, those kinds of alias expressions like that, we use names or that kind of extra. Extra description, again, to narrow down who are we talking about. When I worked in construction, I I rarely knew anyone's last name because we went by first names. And there happened to be like four Steves that worked at the same job site. I was Steve the framer. There was Steve the electrician. There was Steve the plumber. (laughs) And and that extra expression was there to clarify which Steve are we talking about. But here, we don't even – I mean – Mike and Mike's probably. I mean, this is right up your alley. Of who
2: is the prince of the power of the air? In your opinion? Well, you know? I, yeah, right. Well, I don't know if we want to get into it, but no. I mean, it's I, just saying, yeah. I mean, you can. Yeah, I could identify. I'll, we'll just say, okay, that. Well, that that's Satan. You know, we'll we'll just say that. And then, but the, the spirit the, that works in the sons of disobedience, you know, it raises a question: Well, does Satan do that, or why? Why would it? You know, why would he be described that way? Right, but it's it's basically it's casting,
4: it's it's providing. Well, it's shaping how we think about that yeah. individual rather than narrowing down which it is. And so, this reminds me. I mean, my my doctorate was actually on referring expressions in Hebrew narrative. So, I I have a doctorate in name calling, basically. <laughs> uh, um, so, like, how can this help me? Well, I mean, my mom used to uh, used to say, "Well, the person who left the peanut butter out on the counter, please come down and put it away." Uh, <laughs> She knew who left the peanut butter out. Right, I left. I knew who left the peanut butter out, and she could have said, "Steve, can put away the peanut butter," but she didn't. She would basically label you. (laughs) She told me how to think about myself, or at least how she was thinking about me. I was the peanut butter lever outer. And ostensibly that's something I didn't want to be, so I should come down and put it away and then like repent of my evil ways, right? (laughs) You know, that you've got the same kind of thing going on here. The Prince of the Power of the Air, again, assuming it's Satan, but again, it's looking at at who was he? You know, what was his role? Again, it's the one at work among the sons of disobedience, but it's looking at now where the previous sentence is kind of looking at at where they used to be. You know, you used to be doing this kind of thing.
2: I'll tell you what this makes makes me think of because you don't have a connective here, you know. It is name calling. You know the one. The second part builds on the first part. Right. The spirit line, you know, qualifies the prince line. But I'll get questions in email like, "Hey, it looks to me, you know, and I want to know if you agree that we've got you know two different characters here." Right. You know, and no, we don't, because if we did, we'd have a connective. Right. You know, and people will want to argue for certain you know points of their demonology or whateverology, mm-hmm. and and they they think that that because the thought entered their head about the text, it's just as legitimate as any other thought,
3: right? Mm-hmm. No, you know, that that's... someone else
2: had, but it's not. You know, if if the writer wanted you to think of them as two disparate or distinct entities, there's an easy way to do that, but he doesn't. Right, and and and. You know, the comma there
4: that you find in most translations is, is a really good way of doing that. It doesn't mean you don't have comma delimited lists like I want you to bring apples, oranges, pears, those kinds of things. But when you have this kind of this amount of overlap between the two, mm-hmm. it's it's difficult. I mean, potentially there is a separate thing. You know, there is a separate person, but it's essentially ruled out because the amount of semantic overlap. But ultimately, I mean we talked about chaining things together to make one big complex idea. We basically have one idea in this first couple of, in these first couple of verses. it's and you being well you were dead in the trespasses and sins now it's a I
0: could stay awake just to hear you're breathing. Watch your smile while you were sleeping. While you're far away and dreaming, I could spend my life in this sweet surrender. Does no, anybody